Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. All right, well, it's good to see you here today, and... uh... So I want you to think today for just a minute, if I were to have greeted you as you walked in the door today, and I came up to you and said, hey, child, how you doing? Besides you thinking I had lost my mind, what would you be feeling and thinking at that moment? I think for most of you, that would be kind of irksome. Even some of you who are actually young enough to be a child of mine, I suspect that you would probably rise up and say, I am not a child. I'm a grown-up. Don't treat me like one. We have in all of us this drive to be grown up, independent, respected, in control, intelligent, wise, uh, you know, in control of everything. We, uh, and we're in the series that we're calling Fearless, uh, Fearless Life. Uh, last week, we, we spent a bunch of time talking about how fear can be so sneaky, impacting us in ways that we uh, don't always recognize, where we, where we kind of avoid the new and the unknown, and, and we avoid decisions, and we say yes when we mean no, and, it, and, and this fear often drives us to need control and to micromanage things. It, it, it consumes our energy, making us feel stressed and tired and less than effective. So in the series... We're actually looking at John, Jesus' closest friend and disciple, and how he lived a more fearless life. Last week we concluded, while many uh, things tend to motivate bravery and courageous acts in life, John, at the end of his long life, writes in 1 John 4 that the strongest, most stable, most powerful motivator of a fearless life is love. He writes it this way. He says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So as we continue our fearless series today, we're going to actually notice and and begin to examine one of the most prominent themes that John writes about in this letter we call 1 John. And in just five short chapters, John uses the word child or children 17 times. And he uses it in a way that makes you give this picture that John is saying this about himself. Now a 90-year-old man having written much of the New Testament, widely respected, intellectually strong, a leader of leaders, and yet his identity and his approach to God and life is founded in seeing himself and responding to life as a child. And that's actually the invitation John is giving us through this, that we also adopt that same identity and that same posture as to how we approach life. So today we're going to wrestle primarily with two questions. What does it mean when God invites us to be like a child? We're not going to get that completely answered this week. And how does being childlike make us fearless? So first, let's read one of the examples where John talks about being a child, about himself and about you and I, and invites us to this way. It's 1 John 3, and he says this with this sense of exclamatory excitement. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. 
Dear friends, now we are children, uh, we are children of God and, and, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So last week we looked at John's personality through several snapshots of his life and how God changed him from fear-motivated to more fearless. And it's something we all aspire to. This week we're going to understand John's prominent theme of being a child by looking back at John's time with Jesus again, looking at one of the most powerful shaping moments in all of the disciples' lives that now 50 or 60 years after Jesus has died and rose again, we see the fruit of this experience that's still strongly reflected in John's identity and him inviting you and I to that same identity as children of God. See, this powerfully shaping moment with Jesus and the disciples is so important that it's actually recorded in three out of the four eyewitness accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Most scholars believe it is the same moment. Some argue that they're different, similar moments, and it doesn't really matter which they are. This moment speaks to one powerful truth that is important enough to be included in three out of the four eyewitness accounts and a theme that is found throughout the entire New Testament after that. And what we'll see in these various tellings of this interaction with Jesus is this uniquely different perspective that together give us a richer and deeper understanding of what it means to come to God as a child. So the background to these moments is the disciples have been arguing amongst themselves who's the greatest, comparing each other to each other and trying to understand the pecking order. And that's honestly something that's really common for all of us, isn't it? How do you feel about Christmas cards, for example? It's great to find out about relatives and friends who you haven't heard from in a while, and and I love to get those cards, but then there are always those cards that come with a really long letter that enumerate all the successes and accomplishments of last year, and they usually go something like this. Johnny got accepted to Harvard Medical School, and Mary, you know, she's coming right along. She got accepted to Berklee Conservatory of Music after having received the honor of soloing with this philharmonic in in the town, and and, then she did all this while she was doing all these blah, 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 and it goes on and lists all these things she was doing and giving you the picture of a superhuman. And then the letter always closes pointing you to the pictures of their family having the perfect dream vacation they always wanted, the dream vacation that you wish you could have but maybe couldn't afford last year, or maybe it's the dream that you planned and you took but the family dynamics, meaning family squabbles and bad attitudes, made that dream vacation not so idyllic. So you read a card like that and you go can't measure up. Part of you wants to celebrate with your friend, but part of you just also wants to crawl in a hole because you go, I could never live up to this overachieving perfection. This same comparison goes on on social media for us a lot of times too as well. You compare yourself to the people around you and if you feel bad about yourself, you go, I'm sitting at home and look at all these people out smiling with friends, having a great time. And what am I doing tonight? Sitting at home. Equally bad is the comparing we do that's opposite of that. The many times that I feel better about myself because I've done better than you. I must be a really good Christian because I don't have that problem. 
or we walk into a church and, and we try not to have these thoughts, but we run into a friend who their business did really well last year and they're talking about it and you secretly think, well, I did better. I sold more. I made more. I managed 50 people. They managed 10. I feel pretty good about myself. I'm pretty competent. And do you ever have that thought and then in a rational moment afterwards go, I wish I wouldn't think like that, right? Fear drives us to compare ourselves to others. We're fearful of, uh, that we might not be significant. We fear not being successful. We fear not being good enough or beautiful enough or strong enough or fear not being a good enough spouse or a parent or a friend or we fear living a boring life, not as happy as we want. We fear missing out on life, all life has to offer, so we have to push ourselves to get all of it out of we can of life that we can and it's exhausting to live in that kind of driven comparing fear because living a life through comparisons is never stable is it some days you're going to have good days and you're going to exceed others and, and then you'll always feel good about yourself and others days you're not going to do as well and you in some days you're going to truly have a bad day and then you know you can't measure up so you're going to feel bad about yourself see god didn't design you to perpetually compete and compare and live that way. It's not the way God wants you to live, anxious, fearful, driven, and up and down depending on how you measure up to others. And yet, that's all too often the way we live, isn't it? That's what's actually happening in this moment with the disciples. They're arguing about who's the greatest, who should feel good about themselves, and who shouldn't feel quite so good about themselves. Think about that for a moment. These guys are getting to walk with the physical manifestation of God in the flesh. Jesus, the most important person in the universe, has chosen them to be his closest followers. And what are they having a conversation about? Where does each person rank? Am I number five, seven, three? Who's number one, right? But you see, here's the cool thing. In the face of the ridiculousness of that conversation about ranking each other's value and importance, Jesus doesn't get angry with them and call them stupid. Instead, Jesus gives us this powerful living metaphor that's seen in three out of the four Gospels, one that's so powerful that we see it reflected years later in John's identity over a half a century later. Jesus has a little child come into the midst of the group right next to him, and Jesus says this. It's, we're going to just read from Matthew, but he says this basically the same thing in each one of the accounts. He says, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, who takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. In all three records of this encounter, Jesus says, it's not about comparing. It's not about who ranks where. But, it, but if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to learn to live a full, complete, joy-filled, peace-filled, successful, loving, meaningful, purposeful life, the kind that God desires for you and that you desire for yourself, you must, must become like a child. And if you don't, you're going to miss out on the fullness and the completeness and the goodness of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, the disciples are competing and arguing with one another about who's greatest in at this moment. 
See, Jesus is saying you need to understand the humility, the simplicity of living, and the trust and the dependent way of living as a child before me. Isn't that true? Children are really dependent, and most of the time they know it. I raised three kids, and so I know children can be obstinate at times, and very, even at a very early age. But in general, kids want to please their parents. In general, kids are dependent, they're teachable, they're trusting, and they know they're completely dependent on you. Further, if I want to think about, back about this, growing up in church as a pastor's kid, I, I, was, I was this rambunctious, quite hyperactive, out-of-control kid, and, and frequently I had some older person in the church who would pull me up short and stop me. And it was like, when they did that, well, okay. I mean, why? Because I knew I was a kid, and I knew they were an adult, and I knew they knew more. And see, as kids, we're like that. We don't need to be told we're kids, and we don't need to be told that adults know more. That's just a fact, and we know it. Even if we don't always like it, we know that. So an old lady in the church telling me to behave as a kid was no big deal. But think about it. You do that same thing to an adult? Ma'am, please don't do that. Now, imagine what the response is going to be then. It's going to be something like, and, oh, okay, sweetie. You don't need to tell me what to do. I've been a believer for 40 years, okay, and that's not a question. God bless you. Now leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. I'm an adult, right? The problem in life is that we love to grow up and we love to get to the place where we know it, where we're competent on our own, where we are independent. But God is calling us, each of us, to be dependent on him, not independent. Some important background on the culture of the day. Children in Jesus' day, while they were valued and esteemed in many ways as children, they enjoyed virtually no respect till they became adults. In fact, the very language of the day used to refer to children shows this. One Greek word used in the New Testament for children also means servant or slave. So you're talking to your children and telling them they're your slave, right? That's a nice idea. We don't have to do dishes today. You know, yet another word for the children carries the connotation of foolish, inexperienced, and helpless. Greek philosophers actually used to use these words to chide adults who were foolish, calling them children. So imagine the people's astonishment when Jesus brings a child into the midst of all these important adults. But also imagine the child's astonishment at Jesus' actions. This one who, depending on how old they were, may have been likely already eager to shed the disrespect of being a child and wanting to become a grown-up. See, the Bible has consistently held pride as the greatest spiritual failing of humanity. The message of Jesus offends the proud because it insists that we admit that we are sinful. We are unable to save ourselves. We are dependent. We are helpless. We are in need of someone to pay the price on our behalf and, and lead us. Someone wise enough upon whom we can completely depend. And for Jesus in this moment, this picture of this young child brings into living color that truth of being completely independent. That's what Jesus is doing here. 
But there's also more. To look at this idea of being like a child, I want to spend a few moments noting three differences in each of the tellings of the encounter that Jesus has here and then wrap back up with our core verse in 1 John. So in Matthew, when it talks about it there, which is being written to a strongly Jewish audience, the text says this, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples asked Jesus the question. And that's kind of interesting because there are certain people in life who are, they're just kind of askers, right? If you, if, if they suspect or feel like there's something wrong in their relationship with you, they're just going to come out and directly ask you about it. So they're going to go, Hey, I texted you and you, you didn't text back. I texted you again and I called and left a message and you, nothing came back. I thought we were friends and as friends, I thought you would respond. And is there something wrong? Are you, are, are we friends or should I invest my time elsewhere? Just, just tell me because, because I really thought we were friends. Friends. That's an asker. There's certain people like that, right? And Matthew here is an asker. Askers are driven to know the status of the relationship. And what is Jesus' response to that? Matthew records Jesus called a child to him. That word called is really important. Askers need to know they are called, need to know they are chosen. They need to know everything is okay and that they're important. In writing to a Jewish audience, Matthew understands that in Jesus' day, for many centuries, the Jews had this identity as God's called, chosen people. So picture this. Here are all the important men following Jesus, and make no mistake, by this time, they know they are important men, chosen as the closest followers of the greatest man to ever live, a prophet at the very least. And for most of them, they're beginning to understand Jesus' divinity as the Messiah of Israel, seeing all the miracles, seeing the masses throng to Jesus, and they are his chosen followers, the chosen ones. And yet they're still feeling bad toward one another because they're seeming to have a higher rank, some of them, than they are. And there's this competition. And on the flip side, they're frankly also feeling pretty proud of themselves in comparison to the crowds because Jesus chose them even over against the religious leaders of the day. So they're actually struggling internally, just driven both ways by both kinds of competition, still fighting over who's the most important and comparing themselves to others to make themselves feel good. I can hear them arguing, can you? Jesus called me first, so that makes me more important. I served him best today, and I loved him best today, and that makes me most loved and best. Or another one come in and say, I found Jesus first, so that makes me important. I found him first. I brought you to him, not you, so I'm more important than you. See, here's the reality. You can't actually say that. It's a misnomer to say that. Some of us in our spirituality may say, well, you know, I was searching for truth and I, I found God. No, you didn't. That longing for God and his truth, that was God's spirit working in you. God was giving you those desires and setting up opportunities in your path to give your life to him, to follow him. That's the reason every human on the planet is accountable before God because God is doing that in every single life. John, First uh, John 4 puts it this way. He says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. 
See, we can choose to receive that love and follow those longings and promptings, or we can choose to ignore them. Let's jump back more solidly to that child theme in Matthew. A child that is loved by their parents never worries about whether they're chosen or not. They were loved first. They've always been loved. It's all they know, and that brings out a sense of security and peace and joy and comfort that can only be found by being a child of God. So Jesus says to the askers, I choose you. See, Jesus calls this child by his side and says, I choose you. You didn't choose me. I choose you. The Jewish people needed to hear God chose them as they're struggling under the oppression of the Romans. And every one of us needs to hear that message that you are chosen, you are called. In order for us to know how to become like a child, we need to understand that God chose you and God chooses you and is always choosing you. Maybe you're here today and you you don't feel that. You don't feel loved. You don't feel chosen by God. God is saying to you right now, I do choose you. And I'm always going to choose you. And I'm going to choose to love you. So that's Matthew. The Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark serving as Peter's scribe. So Peter records another perspective that reveals something about us and who a child is before God. In Mark 9, it reads this way. They came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. So this argument is going on for quite a while in the background, and walking all throughout the day, and I'm sure Jesus probably heard the rumblings, maybe the differences in the perspective as one of the guys came up to and asked Jesus, while the rest of them just kind of did this and stayed off to the side, and Jesus is kind of bringing this public now, intervening. And, and what do the disciples do when Jesus brings it up? publicly with the whole group, they avoided it. In Matthew, we see askers. In Mark, we see avoiding going on, embarrassment over what they were arguing about. And see, we all know internally that comparing ourselves to others, trying to rank ourselves, trying to establish the pecking order, that we all know that there's something in that that is wrong and unhealthy but we do it anyway. Even if not verbally, we do it in our heads. And when asked about it, often we avoid it. See, Peter was an avoider, a denier of the issue when it was uncomfortable. All of us, all of us want friends that value us. Avoiders still compete and compare for those, that feeling of friendship. They just aren't always direct about it. So, so let's return to the example we used earlier about texting and calling a friend with no reply for a minute. You're still competing for this valued place in their lives, and you're feeling, what, am I not worthy of being in your circle of friends? That's what's going on in this moment, right? But, but since you're an avoider and not an asker, you don't say anything. So the next time the friend, uh, you, you see that friend, they come to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get back to you to answer your texts or your voicemail. And you say, what? Oh, no. You don't have to get back to me. You're just fine. Even though internally you're really hurt 
And you're likely even down on yourself feeling like I'm not good enough to be their friend. They don't value me. But you still say, I'm okay, no big deal. Well, internally, you've got this argument going on in your head saying, I don't really need you. What are you doing? You're avoiding, you're putting up emotional and relational distance. So no worries. See, why do we avoid? It's because we're avoiding our disappointment and our need to be loved and cared for others not being fulfilled. And we're, fulfill- we're fearing that we're not valued enough, that we're not loved so in the context of Peter wrestling with those feelings of value and wording and the other disciples, Peter's remembering them avoiding that, putting emotional distance in play to protect himself, protect themselves from disappointment with Jesus. And here's what Mark records Peter saying then. He says, Jesus took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. See, Jesus is painting this picture of what we need to be like and what we need to receive, especially as avoiders. We need to know God wants to be close to us and receive God coming close to us. Avoiders try to diminish and avoid their need to be close with self-protection, but the only antidote to the exhaustion of competition and comparing ourselves to others is to assume the position of a child and let our God, our Savior, love us. Really love us. Not just, this, not just a God at a distance, but a God who is very, very personal. So Jesus says, avoiders, come close. I want you. See, as parents, Wendy and I messed up probably more than we succeeded in, in how we approached different things. But one of our goals was that our kids would know relationship with us was never in question. Even when they did wrong and, and things hadn't been fully processed or restored, we wanted them to know relationship was not in question. Parenting is hard, isn't it? I mean, uh, how do you help your child know that they've done something wrong and they've damaged trust without them feeling less than or that they've lost relationship with you? especially when they've done something so self-absorbed, maybe even mean so much so that it's not fun to be around them. They're still your kid. You still want to draw close to them. And you hate it when there's distance in the relationship. What Peter is seeing and experiencing this moment with Jesus is that no matter what you've done, no matter how foolish, incompetent, or how overlooked or disdained you are by others, Jesus loves you and wants to be close to you. If we turn to him, he is there and will gladly love you. And that love casts out the fear that causes us to avoid and distance ourselves. See, rather than avoiding, rather than self-protecting, rather than staying in that place of feeling unworthy, Jesus is saying, I want you to come close. Don't pull away. I think it's interesting. For Peter, it wasn't Jesus calling the child. It wasn't Jesus placing the child in the midst of all these important adults. What melted Peter's heart was the hug, the closeness. That kind of closeness and love is what God wants. Additionally, can you imagine in this moment how that must have felt to the child to have Jesus' strong arms around him? Remember, Jesus had been a carpenter for 30 years. I don't know any carpenter today who's not a strong person physically and how much more on Jesus' day without power tools, right? 
So imagine the feeling of being hugged by a really strong person, the sense of protection and security and safety. See, what's trying to communicate here from Jesus is that when God's arms are around you, nobody can take you out of them. You're secure. No situation can take you out of his arms. No diagnosis, no sin, no divorce or broken relationship, no accusations. Nothing can take you out of the strong arms of God when you let him hold you as his child. Assuming the posture of a child allows you to receive that kind of love. That's the invitation here. So that's Matthew and Mark. Then there's Luke. Luke is speaking uh, to the Greeks who were known for their arguing and debating, measuring themselves by the superiority of their ideas and their position. And Luke says this, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. This is really interesting. In the context of arguing for greatness, Jesus takes a child and puts him in the position of greatness by his side. You remember last week we talked about James and John coming to Jesus asking to be in the place of honor. Jesus, would you just add two thrones next to you so that we could be with you, right? Remember that? That what happened, that, that actually incident actually happens shortly after this. And as powerful as the theme of being a child is in John's writing at the end of his life, John clearly did not fully get it in the moment we're talking about today. All of the disciples in the crowd are arguing. We're already leading men of the inner circle of the greatest man. They all knew they were important, still jockeying for position. And Jesus takes the weakest, smallest, least important person in the crowd and emphatically by his actions says, stop it, guys. By placing his child by his side, one who is not considered to be worthy at all to be there, Jesus is saying, look around you. Every single one in the kingdom of heaven is the greatest. Why? Two reasons. Because every single one of us gets our gift of right standing with God as a gift. We don't earn it. No one can claim superiority. Nobody can claim being good enough. You can't, I can't, nobody can. We have all received that as a gift from God. And second... Everyone who follows Jesus has been given the gift of being adopted as his son and daughter, the son and daughter of God. There's no distinction between siblings. We're all loved. Greatness, Jesus says, is found in understanding and living in that dependence and security of being a child of God. That God's plan for this child's life is as important as the plan for your life. Each one's life is different and equally valuable. There is equality regardless of socioeconomics, education, position, race, gender, or any other way we could slice distinctions and create comparisons. Therefore, there is no need to compare. God has a good plan for everyone, and everyone can walk into that good plan. How? If they become like a child and follow God. If you become dependent and satisfied on this good God who's your father. See, arguers argue because they need to prove themselves worthy and important. They want to establish their value. But Jesus says, arguers, trust that I have great plans for you too. And your position 
with me is secure, absolutely secure. He's saying, relax. My favor is with you. I've got great plans and purpose for you and everyone else without comparison. And the beautiful thing of what this does for us is that it totally frees us so that when a friend calls us and says, I just got a fantastic promotion and I tripled my earnings, you can say without any reservation or twinge inside, that's awesome. We've been praying for that. Let's go have a celebration. Let's go out to dinner. And you're paying. I guess there's still a little twinge there. It needs to go away. In this child, Jesus takes each of us among this great men showing just how much he loves us and how much good he has planned for each and every one of you. What does it mean when God invites us to be like a child? And how does being childlike make us fearless? Being childlike helps us live from this place of knowing confidence that we are chosen, that God wants to be close to us even when we mess up, and knowing that we can trust God has a great plan for our lives, and our position, our honor with him is always secure. And that security and love allows us to be fearless because of who God is to us. And it frees us. It frees us to expect far more in the best of all ways. It's not like this as much anymore. But I can remember when our kids were young, Christmas Day was not a day that they wanted to sleep in really late, even if we wanted to. We usually didn't get to. I can also tell you that when they woke up in the morning on Christmas Day, the conversation never went like this. Dad and Mom, all we want today is your will. So if you have no gifts for us, we're okay with that. Because you're so good and you're so awesome. Whatever you want is fine. All glory goes to you today. That ever happened with any of you? Never happened with us. That conversation never happened. My kids wanted gifts. And they wanted them now. And please follow that if they were in a good mood. And guess what else didn't happen when they opened their gifts? They never said to you, oh, mom and dad, this gift is way too nice. It's way too big. It's too much. I must give it back because I'm not worthy. No, they leapt for joy, right? And eventually they hugged us. And after the initial shock and excitement was gone, and they made our hearts so glad and so full because they played and played and played with such great joy with the gifts we gave them. Why? Because they expected it. What is your expectation of God? Children have great expectations. Adults? Eh, not so much. It's harder to have as adults an attitude of expectancy when we've experienced so much of life and so many disappointments and losses. But that kind of expectation is what Jesus is inviting us to. When he talks about these lessons, uh, uh, when John talks about these lessons so many years later, he begins by saying this in 1 John 3. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Do you see 
what God sees? Do you see the great, lavish love? Do you see how he's working through you and through his church and through you in your work? Do you, do you live with an expectation that God lavishes not just love, but great love on you? as a perfect, ideal, loving father would. See, living like a child is to live from the heart of expectancy, of the goodness of God in this moment. It is to live with this expectation and this idea that we are going to receive without hesitation all the good, the joy that God wants to give us. That's your joy as a child, and the joy of God as your perfect, good parent. So this week, I want to invite you to take some time to intentionally think about these different images, maybe the one that stood out to you today, but think about how being God's child would change the expectation about the way you live. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I must confess that the hardness of life so often puts me in this place of disappointment. And I just ask that for me, for all of us here, that you would help us shed that, that you would help us, as John is inviting us to, to, to have this heart of a child that just has beautiful expectation expectation of, of lavishness, expectation of great love, of, of wonderful gifts that you have for us. And you would free us, God, to, to approach you as a child with that kind of joy, with that kind of ability to just expect to receive and enjoy receiving. Yeah, Lord, to say thank you, to not take it for granted, but but to receive. So Lord, now I pray as we continue to worship that you would come by your Spirit and that you would help us receive of your Spirit in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.